The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist, and I'm on a mission to find food truth and connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture. And today I'm absolutely delighted to bring to you a favorite food writer of mine. I love your writing, Susie. You're fantastic. (laughs) This is Susie Chang. She is a New England-based food writer. You may have read her work on NPR's Kitchen Window. You may have heard her interviewed on NPR. She also writes a regular column for the Boston Globe. But basically, Susie, you've turned into a cookbook reviewer extraordinaire. So it seems. So it seems. I think I only started doing this uh, regularly maybe five years ago, but all of a sudden it's kind of snowballed into cookbooks 24-7 around here. Well, how did you get started writing about food? Well, that's kind of an interesting question. I think when we first moved to New England from New York, I was looking for something to do, and I think we had contemplated opening a restaurant, which is probably the silliest idea we ever had. <laughs> but, um, but fortunately, I decided to try capitalizing on the skills I actually knew I have, which were writing and cooking. So I started sending around articles and seeing if I could get accepted anywhere, and the very first place that wrote back to me was the Boston Globe. Wow. Talk about a stroke of luck. What a great <laughs> audience. How many readers do you, do you reach? Oh, gosh. Well, through the globe, probably uh, several hundred thousand on the food section days when that's published. Through NPR, I reach several million, but it's hard to put a number on listenership. Well, I have to tell you, I absolutely love your writing, and our listeners might think this is crazy, but you know, at, now that my children are older, I actually still read to them. Only I read different... I think that's wonderful. Well, it, it is such a wonderful family thing to do, to sit down and read together. And they still really love it. And I read them your kitchen window stories. Oh, I'm so flattered. I, it, they're just wonderful. And I was going through some last night because I thought I should bring some in to share with our listeners. And, they, and let me just let everybody know that all you have to do is go to npr.org plus kitchen window plus Susan Chang. And you'll get a whole variety of articles. But, of course, my favorite article, and one that always makes me cry, is the one about the apple cake. Yeah, that's my favorite, too. And it's about your search for the apple cake that you remember your mother making as a child. And, of course, your mother passed away when you were just a young teenager. So it makes it particularly poignant. Tell me how how that article happened. And did you ever find a good recipe? I did. I did, finally. Well, I think what happened there was kind of a confluence of several things at once. You know, I was becoming a young mother myself, and it was the fall, and the fall is when my mother died, so she's always on my mind during the fall. And also, it was beginning to be apple season, and I'm living in apple country now. So I was thinking about apples, I was thinking about my mom, I was thinking about being a mom, and suddenly all these things started coming together. You know the way it does sometimes when you're a writer. And most of the time when I write, it's really difficult. I'm one of these people who just struggles with writing, and I have to use like carrots and sticks for every sentence. 
But for that one, every once in a while you have something that just has to be said. And I felt when I was writing that, that it was, it was something that was inside me and just waiting to be said. And when I started writing it, I, I too, I was crying the whole time I wrote it because just sometimes it's like something shifts inside you and it was just a really emotional piece for me. I totally understand. And it's, Really comforting to hear you say that writing is a struggle. Because, oh, absolutely. Well, for those of us who do write and think of ourselves as less than worthy writers because it is such a struggle, it's very comforting to know that the very best writers also struggle with the art. Oh, absolutely. You know, and it's, it's like some days, no matter how hard I try, everything just looks dumb, you know, and I just tell myself that, even if it's not working at all, I'm building the muscle. <laughs> the muscle is getting a workout, you know, even right. if it's terrible. <laughs> right. You know, I had done a, a little writer's workshop at a conference in Vermont. It was mostly for dietitians and those in public health. But we we spoke about writing together, and I brought the Once in Future Apple Cake. That's the, the mm. title of the column. And what I asked the group to do was to take the column and we read around in a circle and everybody read one paragraph. Mm. And the person who read the paragraph about your mother's passing mm-hmm. also lost her mother when she was a teenager. Oh. Oh. And it was such a powerful experience for everyone. Everyone in the room was crying. Oh. And everybody <laughs> learned the power of words. And to me, you know, Susie, food is also so powerful. And combining good writing about the subject of food is just tremendous. And you would read the first three paragraphs of the Once in Future Apple Cake. I think our listeners would so totally love them. Okay, I'll give it a go. Okay. okay. When I was so young that even my taste buds barely remember, my mother used to make an apple cake. This I am sure of, even when I falter on the exact color of her eyes, the shape of her hand, the smell of her red velvet bathrobe. I recall poorly the world I shared with my mother. Yet I know that sometimes, on those stern fall afternoons when life itself seemed to bow down before some chilly power, I came home to the smell of baked apples. The cake waited on the linoleum counter, its warm invitation extending beyond our door. It was cut into thick, steaming slices. The crumb was moist, dark, and generously appled. To smell it ignited a flare of hope. To eat it was to feel loved and deserving of love. And that is why you are my favorite food writer of all time. And and then the rest of the article, that's a teaser. That was just an appetizer to what was to, to come. So um, I, I love the articles that you write because invariably they do bring out such deep emotion. Another one that I absolutely love that you did was on oranges and chocolate, romancing the rind. And, <laughs> oh, yes. And yes. how you dip orange rind in chocolate for your husband, Randy, and how it is such a labor of love. It really is. Well, I think the thing about these stories, and I think about food for me, is that I think like a lot of writers and a lot of people who work with words, I have a tendency to kind of get stuck in my head, kind of get stuck in a headlock. And I think this has been true my whole life as a bookish, introverted, essentially, person. And I think the thing about food is that when I discovered food in my 20s, it kind of 
brought me back into the real world. It's something you do with your hands. It, it invites the rest of your senses to take part. And I think it really helped me kind of ground myself in the real world. That's very interesting. Well, Susie, I have to ask, I know that you review many cookbooks, and I, I can't imagine, if I were in your shoes, I think the first feeling I would have is one of being overwhelmed. How do you start? I, how many cookbooks do you receive a year? Okay, well, that is an amazing question to think about, because I think I probably get, I don't know, 200, 300 a year. I think in my house, at any given moment, I probably have 500. And I kind of try to keep them moving in and out of the house. I give them to people. I give them to the library. I sell a few. You know, I just I just keep them moving. And I, every year I have to buy a bookshelf, basically, even though I try to keep a stable number of books in my house. <laughs> it just doesn't work. <laughs> this is a really good comment for those of our listeners who feel that they have too many cookbooks or perhaps someone else in the home is telling them they have too many cookbooks. Everything is relative. It's true. So so you get 200 to 300 cookbooks to review every year. And how do you go about selecting the ones that you will indeed sit down with and review recipes? Well, basically the way it works these days is that I test all the time. It used to be that I would have, you know, like most people, five or six recipes that I did every week, you know, right. kind of in a in a round. Yes, <laughs> and uh, and that is no longer. Basically, I I get cookbooks, I look at them, I stick post-its in them, I I mark them on the cookbook indexing website that I'm a reviewer for, and I, I basically just live, breathe cookbooks all the time. So at any given moment, I'm storing up recipes and ingredients for my weekly shopping, which is on Monday. So by the time Sunday rolls around, I usually have lists of things that I have to get at the grocery store. And then once Monday comes, I go to the store with Zoe, who is now three, and we buy everything, and then all week long we cook, cook, cook. And uh, it's, it's just constant. This constant, constant testing. And then once I get a really good recipe, I kind of go back to that book and see, was it a fluke, you know, or was it, or was that just a really good book? And if I end up making a couple of recipes from the same book more than once, twice, three, you know, if it even, if it starts going into what's left of my regular rotation, which is to say I'll cook it like maybe once or twice a month, then I know it's really good. So does your family think that they all died and went to heaven? No, <laughs> absolutely not, especially when I'm testing a vegan cookbook. <laughs> oh, right, right. We're on the tofu recipes, kids. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, they, they feel like they died and went to heaven when I test the baking book. Oh, yeah. Or a bread book or a carbs book of any kind. They're just like, oh, I love this book, you know. But then there was a period during the summer, let's see, what was I testing? I was I was writing an article for Kitchen Window, and I was testing kind of a foodie kids cookbook. Oh. And it just so happened that these two assignments both used a lot of octopus. <laughs> and, um, oh, yeah. And after two weeks of octopus, my daughter was like, I, I don't like octopus. <laughs> I'm tired of octopus. <laughs> wow. In fact, wasn't the title of that article, Eight Arms, Three Ways? Yes. <laughs> yeah. Right, yeah. That was a fantastic review. Well, I, you know what? I really enjoyed 
writing it. I, I really thought it was a lot of fun. It was one of those things that was not the easiest thing to test, but it was a lot of fun to write about. And so basically, we just eat. You know, I, I'm not a short-order cook, but whatever I'm testing is what we eat. It goes on the table. If you don't like it, okay, have a bite, and then maybe you'll have something you like tomorrow. Right. <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> well, you know, I really wanted to ask you about your kids. You've got two beautiful children, Noah and Zoe, and they watch their mom cook all the time. That's true. Are they in the kitchen with you? Do they see you as a model? Are they following you around? Are they practicing what you're doing? Well, yes and no. I think I think it partly has to do with the age because when Noah was three, which is how old Zoe is now, he did a lot of cooking with me. He did a lot of baking with me, and he would just be in the kitchen with me. He had a he used to have a little stove in here, and he would pretend to cook with me. But then, as he got older, he got less interested in doing that. I think nowadays he is still interested, but it's more like, oh, I'm bored. I don't have anything to do. Can I help you cook? So there's a little bit of that, but not a lot. Zoe, on the other hand, is really into cooking, and I think it's partly her age. You know, she's at a very tactile age, but also partly just the way our routine works. So a lot of the time. I think twice a week I pick her up at 11.30 from preschool, and we come home, and it's like, do you want to bake something or do you want to sew something? Oh. <laughs> and she always wants to bake. She loves to bake with me. So she will get her little apron and we'll make you know, some bread dough or we'll make a little dessert or we'll make the granola bars for Noah's snack or whatever it is that has to be done. She just loves to do that. What a great gift to give your children, that time with you in the kitchen and teaching them life skills, really, on how to yeah. make all these wonderful dishes. Yeah, it's funny. I, I realize now when I look back on it that even though I didn't really learn to cook until I was 22 or so, the people I was around when I was young really influenced my view of how you do things in the kitchen. And I really learned a lot, even though I wasn't doing very much. Mm -hmm. Just observation. Right. If you're just joining us, I'm speaking today with Susan Chang, who is my absolute favorite food writer in the whole wide world. <laughs> and she is a contributor to NPR's Kitchen Window. She also does cookbook reviews for the Boston Globe. Susie, I have to ask you, since you do so many cookbook reviews, what makes a good recipe? Well, that's an interesting question. I think there's several elements to a good recipe. I think the most important thing is the way that it's presented. I think that, you know the Harry Potter where he gets the potions textbook and it's like written all in the margins with all the secrets? Yes. <laughs> so, that, so that he actually, the recipe isn't enough. The textbook has all these marginalia that say this is how you have to crush the beans and this is how you have to do this. And the best recipes, I think, are very lucid when it comes to what you have to do, what you have to look for. It's not sufficient to say cook for seven minutes. That's completely inadequate. In fact, sometimes the time is completely irrelevant. If you say look for this, look for the way they turn color, the onions turn color, Look or smell. You're looking to smell a particular aroma from the spices when they're being toasted. I think the really best cookbook authors are really careful about giving you the cues you need to cook well. So that's what I'm looking for when I look through cookbooks. I look for concise but lucid observations like that. 
I totally agree with you, only I was never able to describe it the way you just did. Right. You know, it's it's terrible to give me a time when I'm watching, I'm looking for those observations. And sometimes my family will say, well, how do you know when it's done? Mm-hmm. And I'll say something really obscure like, well, I just know. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I just know because the house suddenly smells differently. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, when I was... In my teens, after my mom died, my dad and I were trying to cook together, and we took, I think it was like the Joy of Cooking old edition. And it's the Joy of Cooking wonderful cookbook, but very terse. And yes. you know, and, and it's sort of like we knew it was going wrong when the house filled with smoke. Right. <laughs> you know, and they would say things like, saute for 20 minutes or, you know, they would never say that, but saute. And it's like, what does that mean? You know, what does it mean? Cook it for five minutes. I have no idea. So, you know, I really appreciate books that take the trouble to explain what they mean. It's interesting that you say that because I never use the joy of cooking. (laughs) Really? Yeah. I find it to be almost like a good dictionary kind of book, like if I want to use the glossary, Mm -hmm. but I never use it to create flavor. Mm-hmm. I think that it's really good. There are several cookbooks that are like The Joy of Cooking that are really good reference points. So if you're creating a recipe from scratch, you can say, okay, well, if I'm doing a braise, I know I have to allow myself X amount of time, or I know that I have to brown things first, or I know that here are a few ingredients that would go well with it. So there's a lot of cookbooks that you can use kind of as encyclopedias of cooking. Right, right, exactly. Okay, so I I know that you just did a review for the best cookbooks for 2009. Yes. And I I was reviewing those prior to our interview. But I have to ask you a question that's probably going to be really difficult to answer. But do you have one cookbook that you keep on your shelf as, I don't know, sort of like your right-hand assistant? <laughs> well, I have 70. Yeah. Oh, oh, that's <laughs> right. I'm talking to Susie Chang. This is the way it works. So I have cookbooks in my office. I have cookbooks in my library. You know, I have cookbooks under my bed. I mean, I have cookbooks everywhere. Right. But I have limited space in my kitchen, very limited space in my kitchen. So in my kitchen, there's kind of a small closet that has room for about 70 books. And on one shelf is the thematic single-subject cookbooks. On the next shelf is the ethnic cookbooks. The shelf underneath that is the reference cookbooks and the books that are too big to fit anywhere else. Right. And then underneath that, there are like two shelves of baking books. So there's room for 70 cookbooks. And if if it's a cookbook that I use all the time, then it it gets to go on the kitchen shelf. So there's not... To me, 70 is not really very many because... (laughs) I agree. (laughs) But the ones that I use all the time are there, and I'm looking at them right now. Oh, yeah. Well, there's like um, Marcella Hazan's Essentials of Classic Italian Cooking. There's 660 Curries, which is sort of a new one for me from last year, but I use that one all the time. Wow. Yeah, I love that. I just love that cookbook. Oh, and then, let's see, there's The Splendid Tables, How to Eat Supper. I love that cookbook. That's uh, that's a newer one. Okay. And oh, all about braising. That's from a few a few years ago. I just love that book. Yes, I remember when you reviewed that. Yeah, yeah, that's just a wonderful, wonderful book. Well, the one that you've got listed, and I don't know if you have these by any sort of alphabetical order or how you chose to list them for the ten best cookbooks for two thousand nine. But the one about 
the cake baking. Oh, yes. Uh, I have been debating whether or not to get that cake Bible for a long time. Mm-hmm. And it's actually the last one that you have listed, Rose's Heavenly Cakes yes. by Rose Le- Baron Rose Baum. Levy Baronbaum, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And she has been, I mean, her book is, is hefty. The, the cake Bible is a hefty tome. And I've debated, you know, do I really want to add this to my kitchen or not? And now she's got another one out, this one that you reviewed yes. called Heavenly Cakes. Yes. I need a good cake cookbook. Which direction do I go? Okay, well, it, it kind of depends on what kind of cake baker you are, because I think there's many ways to be a baker, and all of them are good, right? Yes. So, you know, you can be a weekend baker, or you can be a once-in-a-while very complicated baker, or you can, you know, be a special occasion baker. So I think that Heavenly Cakes is kind of a special occasion cookbook. Uh-huh. You know, they're beautiful cakes, and what I love about it, I was just thinking about this today, actually, that cake books go in a couple of different directions. I think there's a whole school of cake baking that's all about the decoration. Uh And I think that that's the impulse to create beautiful cakes is a wonderful one. I think it's a creative outlet for people. But I think that a lot of the time when we make cakes, especially sculptural cakes, you know, where you use fondant and where you create little animals and you know, and shapes and things on the cake. You kind of get away from what, to me, is the point of making the cake, which is to eat it. (laughs) The cake. (laughs) Right. And what I love about Heavenly Cakes is that they're beautiful, beautiful cakes, but they're they're real. Yeah. Everything in it is real, and everything is kind of beautiful combinations of flavors. Yeah. I I want a cake that is both relatively easy to make, relatively good looking to serve but when you take that bite it's the bite that sells you more than the little flower fondant that I've worked so hard to create right 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 you want it to taste memorable not just look memorable right and then of course when you make something that's so beautiful and you've spent hours on you kind of hate to cut into it yeah, that's what cameras are for. Yes. That's right. <laughs> you know, I've I've gotten in the habit now of making I guess what for me are spectacular cakes. You know, I'm not I'm not one of those people who will spend three days making a cake, but I will spend a half a day making a cake. Even for my kids' birthdays. And, oh yes. And you spend half a day making it and half a day photographing it so that <laughs> you can remember it after it's been devoured. <laughs> and I should say that your photographs that you also include on those NPR uh, kitchen table stories are wonderful as well. Oh, thank you. I love the composition. I look at them. I study them. I love the colors that you choose to offset or accent the foods that oh, you've presented. You. They're really very tasteful, very well done. Thank you. I have another question for you, and it has to do with we're getting into this new year. Have you noticed any trends? Yes, I think. At the end of every year, I do cookbook roundups. I do one for the Boston Globe and one for NPR, and then I end up doing articles here and there for other venues. So at the end of the year, I'm always looking for what trends have sprung up in cooking. And I find that there's some degree of arbitrariness in doing that because with thousands of cookbooks published every year, you're going to find something for everybody, and you're going to find something incredibly obscure about 
cooking East Indonesian shrimp paste, you can find it. But I think this year, the theme that I've been seeing has been pretty distinct. I think what's been happening for the last couple of years is that we've been seeing a return to the stove in a very basic way. I think this happened when the economy crashed, that people really started cooking again. And so for a couple of years, we saw cookbooks that were essentially cooking 101, getting you back to the stove, kind of easily training you in how to do basic things at the stove. But now we're seeing a development on that theme. I think the cookbooks this year really try to give you the confidence to do things that you might have thought were too hard before. It's sort of like after you get a basic level of knife skills and stove skills and you're not setting off the fire alarm every night, it's like, well, I'm pretty good at this. I could do, I could do something a little harder. I, I might try to bake my own bread. So we're seeing a lot of cookbooks that try to help you take that next step. Well, I think that's a wonderful change. As you were speaking, I was thinking to myself, you have such power by recommending certain cookbooks and people taking your advice to heart. You're actually changing food policy and the way we produce our food. A recommendation from you to choose a cookbook, for example, that recommends a certain food ingredient or a certain style of cooking or way of sitting and enjoying the food you're really influencing many people to do the right thing and eat truly good food. So I want to thank you for that, and I want to thank you for being such an entertaining writer about a subject that is so critically important in our lives. Did, did I neglect to ask you something that you want to leave our listeners with? Hmm. I don't think so, unless you want to talk about school gardening. Well, I did want to talk about school gardening, but unfortunately we're out of time. Okay. So we'll have to leave that as a I don't there's probably a term for that where you leave people wanting more. <laughs> and I'll I'll have to try to get you at another hour when you don't have children or recipes that yeah, you've got to attend right. to. I think what we call that is portion control. <laughs> right, right, exactly. Well, uh I know that you did do a wonderful school garden with your son and you there and you're based in, outside of Boston in Massachusetts. And for you to be able to have a school garden there, we'll leave that with our listeners to know that it can indeed be done. Susie, I want to thank you so much for spending time with me. And I want to thank our listeners for joining us. Food Sleuth Radio is produced at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Thank you, Susie. Thanks so much for having me, Melinda.